you to give your prayerful attention to the reading and an unfolding of God's word. We once again invite Reverend Dr. Eric to join us this morning. And we thank you very much for all the things that you challenged us with yesterday. And we're looking forward to today. Well, good morning. It's amazing how much better all of you look now that I've had a good night's rest. And caught fish. Well, why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our topic for the morning. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, we thank you for another new and beautiful day, and your mercies that are steadfast and new every morning. Thank you for the good time that we had yesterday, not only the time of reflection and study, but also the time of fellowship and encouragement. We thank you for the new friendships that are being formed. We thank you for the old friendships that are being rekindled. We ask, Lord, that the fruit of our time together this week would not only be that we might drive away encouraged, but even more importantly, that we would love Christ, His church, and His gospel all the more, and that together we might strive to be faithful. Bless us now as we reflect on your word together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so you see me up here fidgeting with my lights, trusty reading glasses not far from my hip, and if you would open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. See, I just don't hear enough pages turning, and it has me kind of nervous. And, and part of the problem is some of you are, are probably uh, deceived enough into thinking that if you're holding one of those, you know, miniature TVs with an identity crisis, uh, that if you're holding one of, that's right, that's the one, hold them up, I know. Uh, this is like an altar call for those that need to repent and return to the old paths of actual books. Uh, so... Uh, now that we have one day together, I can give you like one of my favorite Eric jokes. Uh, I told you yesterday that I love this sound. Let me see. This, this is off, right? This is kind of threatening here. All right. That one over there. Okay, so I told you yesterday that for pastors, this is, this is white noise. Beautiful sound. When I'm old, fading out, this is what you're going to need to get me to sleep. My wife, people in church know this. Uh, you also know that I'm, I'm mixed race and that our family has a good sense of colorful humor, pardon the pun. So, do you know why they call this white noise? You might call it white noise? Because it has no rhythm. <laughs> Alright, that's as good as my jokes get, so if you didn't like that, I mean, I can't, I can't promise uh, anything whatsoever after that. So, this morning I'm going to be talking a good bit about uh, John Calvin the Evangelist and what it means to be reformed. And as we get into that subject, I would like to read to you from Matthew chapter 9 at the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. Let's heed it together as well. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I'd like to talk about what it means to be uh, reformed. I'd like to talk about uh, what it means to be a Calvinist. And I'd like to talk about what it means to be evangelistic. 
And I would imagine, as I begin to try to put those things together, uh, maybe you sense even a little bit of uh, strangeness. Are, are Calvinists, our Reformed folks, known for being strongly evangelistic? Uh, are we the ones? I see a couple of heads shaking. No, that's probably an honest reaction there. Uh, and, I, and I'd like to, I'm going to push on that. I told you yesterday at points I'm going to try to be really comforting. And uh, at other points, I'm going to be uh, fairly provocative and hopefully make you somewhat uncomfortable. By the way, I notice a number of you have chosen to sit farther to the back. And I know why. I, I know what you're thinking. If you sit farther to the back, I can't quite see you as well. can't tell how tuned in or out you may be. Uh, but here's the reveal that will discomfort you. I'm farsighted. <laughs> so the brilliant lady up here, Sherry, right, who's sitting right here, uh, I mean, she could go to sleep, and I would have no idea. She could yawn, be checking her email, uh, no idea. But for those of you who are on the back row, I can already tell you how many times you've blinked since we began. Uh, so please don't think you're any safer by being in the back. This truly is like oceanfront real estate uh, right up here. So your, your plan has already been foiled. So when people think about... John Calvin, when people think about Calvinists, when people think about Reformed folks, do they immediately think, wow, those are the people that really love evangelism? And uh, that's, you know, that's intended to be a bit of a provocative question. And what I'd like to suggest is if you get to know John Calvin a little bit better, you, you might actually be surprised uh, that the man himself uh, was far more engaged in evangelism than we might often give him credit for, and that at the heart of what it means to be Reformed and Calvinistic ought to be a real sincere desire uh, for the lost to come to Christ. And as we work through our material, I think you'll see some good and encouraging examples of that. Uh, I'd like to begin by quoting a number of uh, non-Calvinists regarding what they have to say about Calvin. And I should admit uh, that I'm borrowing uh, a couple of these uh, quotes uh, from a professor I studied under a long time ago, a gentleman named uh, Frank James. Uh, and I just remember listening uh, to some of these quotes thinking, that's, that's just really good stuff. I'm going to steal that and use it elsewhere. So here I am. All right, so uh, these are three quotations from people who probably would not be described as friendly to John Calvin. So this is from Will Durant. I don't know if you've heard of Will Durant, the uh, fairly famous historian. Okay, all none of you. Really? No one's heard of Will Durant? Thank you. One, one hand in the back. It happens to be a historian. Great. All right. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, he's, really, he's really famous elsewhere. <laughs> we shall always find it hard to love the man John Calvin, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all the long and honored history of nonsense. Now, I, I love poetry and, and literature, and I recognize a good wordsmith when I see one. That's fantastic use of language, right? I mean, that's really good stuff. Uh, but notice uh, how he suggests, number one, we shall always find it hard to love Calvin, right? You folks love Calvin, and some of you even have pictures of him on your t-shirts and stuff. That's really strange. Um, <laughs> it's funnier, you know, his, his name means bald, by the way, and uh, we... I don't know. I just find that intriguing. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, so we find it hard, we'll always find it hard to love Calvin, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God. Right? So Calvin's view of God, absurd and blasphemous in all the long and honored history of nonsense. Okay? 
Uh, when I was a boy, there's a phrase, you probably heard it, them's fighting words. <laughs> right? Okay, so here's uh, Oscar Fitzer, a Freudian psychologist. It is a fact that Calvin's own character was compulsive and neurotic, that he transformed the God of love, as Jesus taught, into a God of wrath and hate. Okay, so I'm not quite sure how he can state as a fact anything about Calvin's personality since he never met him. Uh, but uh, more importantly, in his view, Calvin transformed a God of love, as Jesus taught, into a God of wrath and hate. So that'll certainly pour some cold water on the fire of evangelism. This is my favorite. Uh, Jimmy Swaggart. How often in the OPC do you get a Jimmy Swaggart quote? Right? I mean, I'm, I'm here to stretch you a little bit. You can go home saying anything else. I finally heard a Jimmy Swaggart quote. All right, so Calvin, I believe, I love this one, has caused untold millions of souls to be damned. I didn't know a guy could do that. I didn't know a, a one person could actually cause untold millions, not just one, of souls to be damned. All right, but when you put these together, it's easy, you know, caricatures are built on some perception of truth, right? If you draw on a picture, some of you here can draw, I can't, I'm just I'm hopeless. Uh, but if you try to draw a caricature of a person, you know, it's distorted, but there's some perception there that, that gives you a reason to get going and you draw what you draw. So the point is, people have this perception that Calvin's theology creates this uh, portrait of God that is blasphemous, wrathful, cruel, capricious, full of hate, right? Uh, that Calvinism, uh, the idea that God is sovereign in salvation and uh, the things we talk about regarding human depravity and election, everything in between, right? That this will cause the church to abandon evangelism. Now, here's what I want to say. On the one hand, I think these folks are dead wrong because the theology is not only biblical, it's better than that. But I also think we need to be willing to own that if somehow, uh, as Reformed folks, as Calvinists, if somehow we've gotten the reputation at being the last in line regarding evangelism, uh, we should repent of that. If, if we are those uh, who have somehow earned the reputation of thinking, you know what, if God wants them, he'll save them, and you know, the rest are just going to hell in a handbag, so why bother? Right? If there's any of that whatsoever in our heart, let's just call it what it is. Let's just repent of it. Let's not make this long and painful. Right? Uh, let's do the surgery quickly, get this stuff out, and uh, heal and be healthier together. And I'd like to uh, respond, uh, begin to respond with this perception of Calvin and Calvinists uh, by uh, a Frenchman, uh, and uh, professionals don't give this away, uh, but a gentleman named Charles de Esperville, uh, who was a Frenchman, who was a, a pastor, and uh, who was one who had a real heart for the gospel, and in a variety of contexts during the time of the Reformation, not only wrote things related to the defense of the gospel, but as a pastor, encouraged people in his churches, missionaries uh, that had already been sent out, pastors that were serving elsewhere, coming under persecution, to stand fast for the cause of Christ, and to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. And I've read uh, multiple letters from this gentleman to Esperville where he not only clearly and beautifully articulates the gospel, but describes it as a really sweet privilege for a person to lay down their life for the cause of Christ. Lay people, pastors, missionaries, widows who have lost husbands and children and uh, just are enduring horrible things. Uh, but this person that I'm referring to, Charles de Esperville, 
pastor and thinker, uh, has another name. What is it? It's John Calvin. This is a pseudonym uh, that he wrote under in a time when many people actually had to do that because the threat of persecution was so strong that to protect your family or your church uh, or yourself, at times you'd literally have to labor under a pseudonym in sending out uh, letters. But I think that's a great way uh, to kind of illustrate that maybe there's a side of Calvin that even we Reformed folk who identify as Calvinists really don't know. Uh, The soft evangelistic underside of John Calvin. And that's what I want to talk about here uh, for a little bit. You know, so Calvin has this reputation of being a theologian, right? He wrote the Institutes. And on our shelves, we have books wider than I can reach that Calvin has written. Uh, But if you read them, actually, I think you might find that he writes with a real heart to the church. He's not as high up in the clouds as we sometimes describe. Uh, In fact, a lot of times, he's actually quite accessible. He was, to be fair, a retiring uh, scholar of sorts, uh, who before he was caught up in this whole Reformation thing, uh, was headed off, hopefully, to read and write uh, in the hills and drink nice French wine. You can't blame him for that. You know, of course, the story of the fiery redhead who kind of grabbed Calvin by the back of the shirt and said, you're coming with me to Geneva to help or you're going to hell, you pick. <laughs> Years ago, I was asked to go a church plant in Hawaii when the workout there got started and a good friend on the West Coast uh, recognized I was really struggling with the decision. I ended up saying, no, I'm not very bright. And uh, the person phrased it the same way, Eric, this is easy. You can go to Hawaii or you can go to hell. You decide, I'll wait, you can call me tomorrow. Well, Calvin uh, decided to go to Geneva, and it would prove to be, in many respects, a hellish experience. Uh, If you know anything of the story of his time in Geneva, you know it was altogether bumpy. Uh, The nice, soft spots were few and far between, and he endured a lot for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the church. He married a widow who had uh, two children. Uh, She and Calvin had one child together who died sadly and prematurely. His wife also died. Uh, During their time together, uh, they were tireless servants who took in, and I I appreciate this, uh, orphans and seminary students. As one who felt like a lifelong seminary student, I appreciate the fact that he took in both and probably could not tell the difference between the two. (laughs) So for the few seminary students who are out here, sorry about that. All right, so they had nine years together and uh, worked tirelessly together for the cause of the gospel. Uh, Eight hours before his death, he was still uh, reportedly dictating uh, work and sermons. In fact, I have his letters here behind me. I'm going to close with a quote from one of them. Uh, One of the more striking images to me of Calvin is that during the time of his stay in Geneva, the plague ravaged Europe. The plague was horrible, right? Uh, This plague goes through, and it's a very uh, easily contagious disease, has a horrible effect on the human body. Uh, The council members there in Geneva, at one point when they were being nice to him, which was not always the case, but at one point uh, sought to keep Calvin from going and visiting people uh, who were sick with the plague. And he had this wonderful response to that. What kind of shepherd would I be if I would not go and visit uh, the most broken of God's sheep and those who were lost without a shepherd? And so at least as it's described, uh, he would go and visit these people, comforting those who are in Christ, Uh, with the hope of the gospel as they lie, broken. You know, family, just imagine a large room like this, and, you know, most of the room is sick. Other people are caring for the sick, and you're you're stepping over the bodies, and what does that look like? And 
what does that smell like? And wouldn't it be safer to say, you know what, I'm too important. They really need me. I, I should be out there writing or something. And rather, Calvin was caring for the broken of God's people and ministering the gospel to those who might not know Christ. I, I find that remarkably endearing. Frankly, uh, convicting as a pastor who, just like you, at times has a magnetic attraction for my comfort zones. Uh, nearly uh, things like the ocean. Uh, for me, coming to Michigan, this is like as close as I've come to suffering in a while. <laughs> just kidding. It's quite lovely here. Yeah, I know that one will come back to bite me. It's all right. It's all right. Calvin encouraged pastors who were in the context of persecution to stay put, to not leave their flocks. If you're a pastor, it's like wearing a bullseye on your back in the time of the Reformation. And I think, you know, you're a pastor, you've got a wife, you've got children, uh, you're suffering, you can lose your home, you can lose your, uh, your everything, right? You can lose your life. And he would write and encourage his pastors to continue steadfastly and faithfully shepherding their flocks. Uh, he wrote uh, to women, uh, whose husbands were Catholic, and these wives had become Protestant. And in that context, you could be subject to uh, abuse and uh, just you know, mistreatment. And he encouraged them uh, in ways that are just remarkably tender and compassionate and pastoral. And at the same time, reminded folks in so many different contexts, as he himself was practicing what he preached, that we have to bear the cross for Christ in this world. And the gospel does not always incline us towards comfort. Many of God's people in the pages of history have simply suffered for the cause of Christ. And that, that is what God calls us to. And part of what it means to be a Calvinist, to believe in the sovereignty of God, is to lay down your life for Christ and for the gospel. And so whether he was writing to women, widows, pastors, missionaries, uh, that was not only what he told them to do, I think it's what uh, he did himself. Much of his work was devoted actually to the training of missionaries. I was talking with a, a young man here uh, from lunch, one of the seminary student intern guys who I uh, was talking about uh, Brazil. It's one of the first places that missionaries from Geneva were sent to. Think about now all that you know about the reformed churches in Brazil that are arguably as healthy or healthier than ours. Right, uh, A thriving reform movement there. It goes all the way back to the 1500s and the training of missionaries that took place in Geneva. Okay? Uh, Calvin saw the expansion of the new world and all these economic opportunities that the world was seizing as a missionary opportunity as well to carry the gospel on boats far and wide uh, to all the nations. Uh, he had a high view of the church. And you have to appreciate, too, in this context, part of what muddies the water and makes so many things hard to understand is that there was, a, there was really no clear distinction between church and state. Separation of church and state, the way that we think about it, uh, it you know, is a fairly new, almost modern phenomenon in terms of history. So the effect of that was you have kings and you know, popes, uh, kings and church leaders arguing who gets to be on top. And popes want to build churches and kings want to build armies. Well, how do you get people to lay down their life and give you all their money to build a church? Or how do you get a husband to leave his wife and kids and uh, go to war? Well, how about this? You tell them if they'll go and serve this cause. By the way, I represent God. So if you'll get behind me and follow, you're going to heaven. And you can get that sorry sinner 
that you love out of purgatory, where you can see how it works. And so Calvin, following uh, the train uh, of Luther's thought, believed that this, this muddy uh, confusion right between the kingdom and the sword uh, manipulated people into false service and false understanding. And this is what led to, whether you like the phrase or not, uh, what we refer to sometimes as the two kingdoms, okay? Uh, the church and the kingdom of God and the world as a separate sphere, God ruling over both, but they're different. And so Calvin said, we must carry forward among the heathen the preaching which the Gospels began. And in saying that, he's standing in the shadow of Luther and others. Uh, they all believed, and I think this is one that should strike a chord with us, that the church had become so corrupt, the only way forward was a thoroughly evangelistic reform. Now, as reform folks, if there's one thing we're really good at, it's pointing out what's wrong with other churches. It's like a spiritual gift. <laughs> I feel unusually uh, endowed with it. And so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm being a little bit snarky there. It's one of my favorite words, by the way, in the English language. I love the word snarky. I am, I am snarky by nature. Okay, but uh, Calvin and Luther looked at the church and said, this is a mess. We, I think, would look today at the churches around us and say, this is a mess. But he had a proposal. He had a conviction that the way forward was not simply trying to criticize and fix everything that's wrong in the church out there, but that actually a big part of the reform had to be through evangelizing those that are not in the church. Okay? And I've really grown to appreciate this. Like it's, it's fantastic to remind our evangelical friends about the beauties of the Reformed faith and to call them to the higher ground of the things that we cherish. And I, I cherish them too. I really do. But uh, how much more fruitful and perhaps even effective uh, might it be if we were to focus more of our energy on evangelizing and discipling? That's what I think the Reformers, to a large extent, uh, were saying. And I would point out, I'm still a pretty young pastor in my own mind. I have 17 years now. Uh, but over these years, just a few things stand out. One of them is the profound joy it is to pastor new converts. And frankly, sometimes, you know, the longer we're in the church and we get kind of stagnated, we focus on the wrong things, get really opinionated, or something wrong with the color of the carpet, or, you know, all that stuff, right? You, you know what shuts that down in a moment? An adult baptism. You know who's really easy to pastor? At least in my experience, and you know, some of you need, of course, prove me wrong, right? New Christians. Lead a guy to Christ. Teach him how to do family devo devotions. See the look in his eyes, his wife's eyes. Uh, see their kids start showing up to Sunday school. See the people around that have been focusing probably on the wrong things for too long begin to focus on that and realize, oh, wait a minute, that's why we're here. That, that's why we're here. This is good stuff. Well, uh, this is a very Reformed uh, and Calvinistic idea. Uh, Calvin believed that evangelism was a remarkably biblical and eschatological idea. Let me explain what I mean by that. God said in his word, this is what we looked at yesterday, uh, that he's going to spread his fame and his glory over all the earth. And there are going to be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the kingdom of God. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, right? This is everywhere. We saw this yesterday. This is in Abraham. 
blessing to the nations, right? Uh, this is in Isaiah. I'm going to sprinkle the nations clean, right? Uh, from all the nations, people are going to come, and they're going to come uh, into this new and everlasting temple of God, and they're going to glorify and enjoy God alongside you. And so when you look at what Calvin spent his life doing, right, uh, as a local pastor in Geneva, training people, preaching the gospel, preaching multiple times a week, making me look like a wimp, right? Training missionaries that were going out uh, through all the nations. I, th- I, th- I think the man really had a profound heart for the gospel. And to think of Calvin, I have my own personal mosquito up here, I think. Uh, to think of Calvin as anything else, as just this staunch, retiring theologian, is really unfair. It's really unfair to Calvin And frankly, it's uninspiring for us. Uh, Calvin had a heart for the gospel, and he had a life that matched his heart, and he laid it down. And if we're going to call ourselves Calvinists, then we need to do the same. If we're going to call ourselves Reformed churches, uh, we need to recognize, uh, to, to push a little bit, that you don't get to pick and choose what parts of Reformed theology you're going to hold on to. It has struck me uh, in the years I've been in the reform camp, which are probably not nearly as many as most of you, uh, but that we're often careful to say that, you know, if you're, if you're reformed, okay, I'll just do this. If you're reformed Baptist, well, that's not necessarily entirely, you know, there's the, pres- there's the baptism thing, right? I mean, there are, you know, there's books that have been written along that. If I have any Baptist friends here, don't get mad at me. I'm just trying to reflect on the conversations. Don't worry, I'll offend everybody within the next five minutes, Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's more to being reformed than just five points. There, there are books out there uh, addressing that subject. But what I'd like to suggest is if we don't see evangelism as at the heart of what the church is called to do in this world, we're really not reformed. We've, we've picked the comfortable parts of reformed theology, and we've left a lot on the table. We've used the sovereignty of God as a reason to punt rather than a reason to play. And I'm, I'm all about saying, if that's, if that's the case, we need to repent of that. Uh, Calvin did not build an ivory tower uh, in which he would enclose himself, his family, his church, and, and try to disappear from the world and hope that it would just kind of drive past and leave us alone. And sometimes I think that's our mentality. You know, the world's going to hell. God's sovereign. If he wants them, he'll get them. So we'll just build our walls and hope the world will just leave us alone. That is not biblical. You don't get that anywhere in the Bible. You cannot, uh, you cannot excuse that from anywhere in the Bible. You cannot proof text it from the pages of church history. You can't find it in Calvin himself, the fount from which Calvinism flows. It really comes from the Bible. But you know what I mean? You can't see it in his life. You can't see it in the people that he trained. Uh, reformed isolationism is a myth. And not only is it a myth, I'll talk about this more uh, tomorrow, uh, but uh, the world has now like, placed before you an even more urgent need to respond. And I'll explain what I mean ever so briefly by this. There used to be a time when training missionaries to go to the nations meant you have to send people to the nations. You know why? Because the nations were not in your backyard. So where am I going with this? Where are the nations now relative to where you live? They're all around you. The missionary field is in your backyard. There might have been a time 
where we had our you know, little culturally isolated enclaves. But more and more, you have to admit, in this rapidly changing world, uh, those days are almost gone. That, that's, that's a page in history that you're now turning in a whole new chapter about what the world looks like is being written, and you are in this story whether you stop up your ears and want to close it off or not. You, you simply don't have the choice but to engage because the world is engaging you. It's built its house in your backyard. Oh, and by the way, those little mini TVs with an identity crisis, iPhones and iPods and you know, things that my kids are 10 times better on than I am, uh, if you think the world's uh, not in your backyard, it is, but what I'm saying now, it's, it's in your living room. It spends more time with your kids than you do. The ideology, the vocabulary, the philosophies of the world are so accessible. I hear all the time from parents, I've, I've put all these filters They get around filters, don't they, right? Uh, the world has these profound ways. So, so what are the options? Well, you continue trying to find some safe place to retreat, right? Uh, a lovely little illustration from this two weeks ago. We were in California speaking. I was there speaking at a family camp. You, can't, you catch me looking at my watch, but don't worry. I will ignore it obstinately. And there is a volleyball court like we have outside here. And... The grass around this volleyball court uh, was was all bumpy, and you could tell there were things like gophers or groundhogs or ground squirrels. They all looked the same to me. Um, and while we were standing there after playing a game of volleyball, right beside the volleyball court, I mean, this is the side of the court. I'm looking down at the ground while talking to a couple of teenagers about evangelism. I mean, God just did this. It's a fantastic illustration. Got a good fishing one yesterday, but I'll save that for later. So I'm, I'm looking down at the ground, and I'm noticing down around one of these holes, the ground about four inches away is moving. And I'm just watching, and here comes this cute little critter, and he's got like a little handful of dirt. And he tries to push that dirt to the top of the hole, and he disappears. And we keep talking, and a few seconds later, here comes this little critter. I guess it's a gopher. I really don't know what it is. I'm forgetting. So he comes up again, a little handful of dirt, and he tries to close off the hole, and now it's about halfway. So he does this about, sorry, I know, when I move the wrong way, I'm, I'm messing with that thing. Um, so he does this about four or five times. It's about ten minutes. And now the whole of the thing is sealed. Okay? And he's got this little facade of isolation, insulation, peace, and safety until the rest of the teenagers come walking up <laughs> and step right on his hole and get right back on the volleyball court. What's my point? You can try really hard to build that wall of isolation and, and somehow pretend that the world will just do its thing all around us and leave us alone. But the reality is, it's not. It's not going to leave the church alone. You know that. Like I, I'm not you know, really all that into politics, I'm not about to talk about it, but if I did for 10 seconds, you'd immediately agree with me, it's on. Right? I mean, if you compare the world we live in today to what it was 20 years ago, the challenge it is to be a Christian, raise Christian kids with godly morals uh, compared to 20 years ago, fast forward 20 years from now, try not to freak out. 
Try to imagine the context your kids will be raising their kids in. It's sobering. It's startling. It's unnerving. So how do you go forward? How would a good Calvinist go forward? Well, I think the way forward is to engage, is to evangelize, is to disciple, is to do exactly what the Great Commission told us to do yesterday, uh, what Calvin the Calvinist, you know what I mean, did in his own life, and to perpetuate the beautiful inheritance that we've already been given. Uh, Calvin believed wholeheartedly, and I'm quoting him now, the kingdom of Christ began in the world when God commanded the gospel to be proclaimed everywhere, and even today, its course has not yet reached completion. This is why we're here. Until kingdom come, Calvin believed uh, that we are to proclaim the gospel everywhere, from our backyard to the nations. Until Jesus comes back and says, all right, you're done, you're not done. Uh, We agreed yesterday, you all agreed with me, that there's no such thing as a missional church. It's redundant. If you are the body of Christ, you are by nature missional. The question is whether or not we're being obedient to the mission. Whether or not we're being faithful as uh, Calvinists. You believe the Bible actually promised a harvest of souls right up until the time of Christ's return. So I'd like to ask a question. Well, just a fun little, what do you think here? If Calvin had a favorite verse, what do you think it would be? Now here's the problem with the question. I don't know. There's, there's, you know there are people in here who know Calvin better than I do and could probably answer that question. But I, but I have a fear. And my fear is that someone's going to say it's Romans 9. Right? Uh, Romans 9. But I'm not persuaded that would be. Now, I'm, I'm not a Calvin scholar. I don't pretend uh, to be one, okay? But I've read a good bit of his stuff. And I actually think a good guess, a good suggestion, something uh, that at least from my reading seems to pop up a lot, is the text I began with, where Calvin uh, finds in Scripture Jesus saying, The harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, now here's a very important phrase, into his harvest. What did Calvin give his life to? Not just the gospel, but to the training of people to go out and proclaim the gospel. I, I think he could maybe make a good argument that his life verse was from Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up more laborers that would have such an identity driven by the gospel that they would be zealous for the work of the Great Commission because it's whose harvest? It's not yours. It's his. And he has promised a harvest of souls. He's already said, the field is white. He's already said, I have got people that I'm going to save into the kingdom, right? Uh, They might look like really nice, normal people like you. They might look like crazy people like me. But they're all going to come because they're a part of his harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Calvin, as I mentioned earlier, had, uh, had one child naturally 
who died. One of the more regrettable episodes in a biography I've read is that supposedly the townspeople in Geneva, at least some of them, yeah, they were kind of cruel. They literally did things like they named their dog after Calvin. That's terrible. Can you imagine naming your dog after your pastor? I'm not suggesting it. <laughs> it might not be received well. Uh, Calvin had one child with his wife, and that child died. And supposedly he was mocked by people in Geneva when that child died. But he had a really wonderful response. He said, I would rather have one child in the Lord than a hundred in the flesh. So here's the question. Where are Calvin's children now? They're not in the flesh, but they're in the Lord, and they're in this room. You are Calvin's Klein Kinderin for the elect. You are his grandchildren. You are his children. You've inherited the mantle of what it means to be Reformed and Calvinistic, and I love this stuff. Uh, I think this is beautiful. But at the end of the day, if we are going to claim to be a part of that legacy, a part of that uh, tradition, uh, then it comes with a sincere love for the gospel, the training and sending of missionaries, of being salt and light in our own backyard, because, beloved, that's what it means to be reformed. That's what it means to be a Calvinist. And I'll say just a couple things in it. And when I say a couple, I mean that in a very postmodern sense. To me, a couple means ten. So this is from Calvin's uh, Last Will and Testament. I read this once in a while. There, there are days, weeks, every pastor in the room here would, would admit to you there, you know, there are times when I think, you know, the garbage man in my neighborhood has a great life. He gets up real early. He, he deals with people's trash all day long. He comes home stinking. He takes a shower, and the trash doesn't call him. It, 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 it doesn't send him emails about what he said wrong the day before. and It doesn't wake him up in the middle of the night. He doesn't have a hard time not thinking about the trash when he's on vacation. This is not the most affectionate metaphor. Um, he, he grabs his baseball glove or surfboard and goes out with his, with his son and just has a fantastic time and forgets it. And you know, when I was, when my son was little, when the trash man came by, it was like the Fourth of July. He would go out there and he'd watch that guy come from this side of the circle till that side. And just the measure of the man was the guy that could pick up that trash can and throw it at the back of a truck and drive away. He'd honk that horn one time for Carl. Uh, so on days when I'm I'm kind of envying the trash man, strange as it is, uh, this is actually something I'll read once in a while. Uh, it's it's it'll take me about two minutes to read it, so just be patient. And uh, think it through. So this is from Calvin's last will and testament. In the first place, I render thanks to God, not only because he has had compassion on me, his poor creature, to draw me out of the abyss of idolatry in which I was plunged, in order to bring me to the light of his gospel and make me a partaker of the doctrine of salvation, of which I was altogether unworthy. And continuing his mercy, he has supported me amid so many sins and shortcomings, which were such that I well deserved to be rejected by him a hundred thousand times, to which I can say amen. But what is more, 
He has so far extended his mercy towards me as to make use of me and of my labor, to convey and announce the truth of his gospel, protesting that it is my wish to live and die in this faith, which he has bestowed on me, having no other hope nor refuge except in his gracious adoption, upon which all my salvation is founded, embracing the grace which he has given me in our Lord Jesus Christ, and accepting the merits of his death and passion, in order that by this means all my sins may be buried, and praying him so to wash and cleanse me by the blood of this great Redeemer, which has been shed for us poor sinners, that I may appear before his face, bearing, as it were, his image. Okay? Then this next little section. This is where he reflects on his ministry in particular. I protest also that I have endeavored, according to the measure of grace he has given me, to teach his word in purity, both in my sermons and writings, and to expound faithfully the Holy Scriptures, and moreover, that in all the disputes I have had with the enemies of the truth, I have never made use of subtle craft nor sophistry, but have gone to work straightforwardly in maintaining God's quarrel. But alas, the desire which I have had, and the zeal, if so it must be called, has been so cold and so sluggish, that I feel myself a debtor in everything and everywhere, and that were it not for his infinite goodness, all the affection I have I have had would be but his smoke. Nay, that even the favors which he has accorded me would only but render me so much more the guilty, so that my only recourse is this, that being the Father of mercies, he will show himself the Father of so miserable a sinner as me. And here's what impresses me about that. You know Calvin as this prolific theologian, right? The guy who wrote the Institutes and, you know, commentary set this big and a sermon set this big and all the other stuff, right? Uh, Who did all the things we just talked about the last half hour or so. And yet Calvin from his deathbed seems to be fairly contrite, if not repentant. And what uh, impresses me is that it's not what he has done. We talk about sin in two categories, sins of commission, sins of omission. Sins of commission are the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done. But that's not where the accent falls. Where the accent falls from Calvin's deathbed is, Lord, forgive me for the things I've left undone. The things I've left undone. An observation I would make is as people get older, they begin to realize what matters, right? Uh, None of you young folks, when you are older, when you get up there in years, you're not going to wish, you're not going to lay there on your deathbed and say, you know, I wish I'd just gotten one level higher on that game on my iPad. That won't mean squat to you. You're not going to say, you know what, I wish, I wish I'd watched one more hour of TV with my life. That, that would have really made the difference. Uh, you're going to miss people around here, and you're going to think about how sincere your affection for Christ and his kingdom were and the things that defined your life. And you'll, you'll probably sound a little bit like this, and I, and I will too. But why do we have to wait till we're really old to have such wisdom when we could resolve now to be faithful children of Calvin, to strive to serve him in the gospel, to love the church, because the church is the agent of the Great Commission, and we've been given a godly heritage, a beautiful inheritance, and particularly a commission to go to all the world. So where are Calvin's children? They're right here.
I'll stop there. Uh, Alan, tell me what to do in rather gracious tone. Um, are you going to do the pass the mic thing or just raise a hand? Comments, questions, uh, wild accusations of heresy? Questions, comments, yes. I have one answer. Uh, if I may, the first one is if Joel Osteen has said something about John Calvin, do you know? That's a good question. I've actually thought I could improve this lecture quite a bit by uh, including a number of other quotations from, from other people that dislike Calvin. I'm not familiar with one uh, off the top of my head of Joel Osteen, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, if, if he's one of your favorite pastors and you know one, uh, feel, feel free to share it. The second question is, <laughs> is it okay, I like the trash man analogy, yeah. and if you would, would you please give me the address of your session so that I wonder how they would react to this analogy. <laughs> They've heard it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I do, I, I feel it. I, I get the point. I'll be brief here. Certainly, I'm not trying to liken the church to trash. I, I don't mean it that way at all. If it comes off that way, I apologize. But, you know, we've had honest talks. I mean, the hardest part about being a pastor is uh, including, you know, well, every Sunday, I'm here, and my family is on the opposite side of the church. And, and that's the way my kids will go up knowing church. Uh, most men in the church sit with their families in church, and I envy that. I mean, I'll just tell it. I love being in church with my kids. And, you know, there are times where, frankly, you know, for those that have just more uh, kind of jobs you can drive away from for getting a little bit easier, but, you know, it's, it's hard not to see some of that when you're going through the thicker things. So I'm just exposing my own sins and frailties, perhaps. Um, but just to say... That, you know, I think every pastor would admit there are struggles, right? There are reasons why we give our guys sabbaticals and, uh, you know, uh, it's a wonderful calling and it's sacrificial labor. And at the same time, uh, when I read through something like this, I'm really impressed by Calvin's sense of, Lord, forgive me for what I didn't do. I mean, to come from a guy like Calvin, who I think of as a, just a machine Work-wise, and I, I think I work pretty hard, but just you go through that, and to me it's extremely humbling, but it's also encouraging. You know why? Because I'm not on my deathbed. Yet. <laughs> you don't need to seriously always I am of that age you're talking about when most of the time it's questions or comments like that. I'm not very serious. Thank you. Thank you as well, brother. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, we probably say it many times. If uh, they aren't going to materialize, I looked at the weather. But if a storm was to come up, thunderstorm was to come up, and we were all to walk down to the beach, and this was a lightning rod, it's over this guy here, and it's over the pastors, right? And uh, we forget that. And as elders and as a congregation, we need to bear that in mind. You know what? I'm an elder in my church, and rarely do I get CC'd on a lot of emails. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, uh, you know, they'll be shared in a session, and, and we'll try and take that burden off. But as a congregation, we can do that. One way we can do it is we can be listening 
what is the charge that's being, being given to us? And we can say, okay, help me even more to be able to, uh, to, to, be able to take up that charge. And if it's evangelism, it's evangelism. It's encouraging our pastor then do just that. Any other questions? The back. And can we repeat the question? I'm not sure that would have been caught. Yeah, you, you can repeat it, and I'll try to answer it. <laughs> okay, so uh, the question is, how, how can we be able to encourage, whether it's in family worship or in other ways, amongst our family, worshiping God and not a man like John Calvin, but be able to take instructions from a man like John Calvin and practically be able to import them? I actually have one idea, but I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let our speaker yeah. address it. So a couple things. First of all, I have come to appreciate that the best way to get to know a recognized theologian, whether it's Calvin or Machen or Van Til, is actually through their sermons. So if you're going to try to read something to create a positive impression, uh, <clears throat> in my mind, sermons are the best place to go. When you see a man before the church, that's when you really see his heart and probably when he speaks the most clearly. Secondly, I think it's great to just acknowledge that you know men are sinful broken and at times foolish. And we, we don't want to create idols out of our favorite theologians. I mean, my son's middle name is Voss, and I play around with that, right? But at the end of the day, all, all these people are clay-footed sinners that had only hope in Christ, and I think we need to acknowledge that. Uh, I think there are ways that we want to talk about uh, the beauty of what we have in our tradition. And I also think we need to be really honest with our faults. And I... I think that's a really significant note because I'm, I'm impressed. I, you know, I don't see things nearly as well as I want to or even think I do, but I'm impressed how well our kids are aware. They see my faults. They see our faults. They look at our church, and there are a lot of things that they're thinking, but maybe not even saying. And I, I think we want to find, like, you know, find pastoral, parental ways to engage those conversations. And you know, let's just take the subject of evangelism. Let's, let's say you know, we walk away from this conference really like encouraged and convicted. Like, okay, we need to be more about this. I think acknowledging where we've been weak would be a great place to start. Uh, if Calvin really did, you know, if, we, if it's right to call him Calvin the Evangelist, to be playful with it, and there's some ways as Calvinists we've not been, I think owning that is a great way not only to acknowledge Calvin's faults, but more importantly, my own. And I'll say it this way. I don't want my kids to be like me. And I don't think you want your kids to be like you. I think we want them to be better. We want them to love Christ more. We want them to love the church more. We want them to serve uh, faithfully, more sacrificially. And I think part of the way that we can lead is by being the first to acknowledge our own sins and faults, as well as those of people like you know, Calvin, people that we love, so that they find space for their faults, but also space for their gifts and calling within the kingdom. It's a really good question. We're uh, actually ready for our snack time. I'll just follow up and say that uh, one thing, actually, I'm not even doing in my own family worship. I do in my own personal devotions at times is if you go to Calvin's sermons, I was glad to hear him say that, and you go to the end of those sermons, especially in the minor prophets, there's prayers. Like he's closing the sermon, he closes in prayer like we do uh, every Sunday. And those prayers, they're great. They're really great. They're not long, but they show a very humble heart. And here's John Calvin joining with the father in the home, 
submissively coming before our Lord in a prayer, and you could read that prayer at the close of your family worship, you'd be very benefited by that. So we're closed now. Let's join snack time, and I'll call you back when it's time to start our second session. Okay, good. Let's go ahead and uh, restart. Uh, if you would, go ahead and uh, lock the back doors. I always like to like, test that parable and just kind of see how that, how that works. Um, I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians 5, if you'd like to turn there. And then uh, we will jump into our next, uh, our next session together. 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> beginning at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And let's pray together again. Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who we are in Christ, what you have caused us to be in him, righteous, holy, and blameless in your sight. We thank you that in Christ we have both our justification, our sanctification, our adoption, and eventually even our glorification. We thank you for the work of your spirit that binds us not only to Christ, but even to one another. And we pray now that you bless and encourage our hearts as we strive to think our thoughts after you, and even understand a bit more clearly and dearly the identity of our church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, uh, this is a, a fun uh, little talk uh, that we're going to engage on the subject of what it means to be Orthodox Presbyterians. Stop. Don't leave. <laughs> so, you know, what does it mean to be an Orthodox Presbyterian? And how does it relate to this idea of uh, the gospel? Well, to me, that's actually a pretty exciting question. Uh, as you know, kind of shared my story last night, you know, I didn't grow up in the OPC uh, when I began to attend seminary, it was probably the first time I'd ever really heard of it. And as I got to know uh, Reformed theology a little bit better, uh, and my convictions developed, they developed kind of down this fairly conservative theological trail. And uh, I often uh, find myself sort of surprised that I'm a minister in the OPC, and I'm, I'm, maybe you feel the same way. Um, God's been very gracious, and I remember uh, when I was forming my early impressions of the church, to me, uh, the OPC was a denomination that wanted to be faithfully reformed, and it also wanted to be faithfully evangelistic. Uh, that was the introduction uh, that was given to my wife and me, and in many ways, I think it's proven to be true. Uh, obviously, uh, in some areas, in some ways, more encouraging than others, but I'd, I'd like to talk in this session, and I'll leave room for Q&A at the end, just a little bit about our, our foundational identity. And I'm going to do that uh, by way of discussing two prominent figures in the OPC that you, you both know a good bit about already. Uh, one is J. Gresham Machen, Gresham Machen. I, I was corrected last week in California. I, I mistakenly said Gresham, and there were hisses around uh, the room from two people um, who... <laughs> Who, who knew that it's supposed to be pronounced Gresham. It's not S-H, it's Gresham. So anyway, uh, there you have it. Um, that's the way you're supposed to say his name. Jay Gresham. Try it one time. Gresham. There you go. Now you can say you learned something really, really important at family camp this year. And so the other figure is going to be uh, Cornelius Van Til. And so I, I want to introduce the, the topic of the discussion by asking a question and the question is, 
Are we sword makers or soldiers? Okay, so are we sword makers or soldiers? Well, what's the difference? I'm going to suggest that the difference is really important, that the difference between a sword maker and a soldier uh, is, is very significant. In short, one goes to war, the other does not necessarily go to war. A sword maker can make an awful lot of swords, become a master craftsman in the art of making swords, can even uh, reflect from a safe distance about the art of war forever, and yet never step foot on a battlefield. Conceivably, a sword maker may never even use a sword, right? But a soldier goes to battle. Uh, He sees the war. And when you think about what it means to be an Orthodox Presbyterian, we're going to again ask the question, are we sword makers or are we soldiers? Well, I want to try to answer the question in a pretty encouraging way, which is to say uh, in the story of the OPC, you actually find uh, that we're soldiers. We're not just sword makers. We don't just comfortably discuss the idea of evangelism or apologetics from the 30,000-foot view or 100 miles away from the battlefield. Uh, Our history actually says we're on the field. So yesterday, I began uh, my, my first talk by saying, referring to the Sermon of Machins, where Machin says that the first, uh, the most important thing the church does is what? What did Machin say? Evangelism. And Voss corrected Machin and said it's worship. But Machin, you know, who's a guy we give a lot of uh, credit to in the OPC, uh, considered him one of our founding fathers, if we can even have such a thing. Uh, Machin believed uh, that evangelism was right there at the front of what it means to be the church. And what I'm going to say is, it's right at the front of what it means to be the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This is a part of who we are. Uh, this is a part of our story. Okay? Uh, the church is the agent for the gospel in this world. Now, uh, you know about Machen that he was, of course, a Calvinist, so he inherited all the stuff that we talked about uh, yesterday. And really, one of the questions is, you know, with, with that inheritance, do you, do you kind of get some bad genes that are inclined away from evangelism? And if Machen uh, was anything, he was Reformed, Calvinistic, and he was all about evangelism, uh, as were those who were inclined to start the OPC in the first place. In 1923, when he penned uh, the first version of Christianity and Liberalism, uh, he made it very clear that what we needed to do as a church is make things very clear. We needed to understand the difference between the church and the world, and that a liberal gospel was really no gospel at all. That if you take the gospel out of missions, missions are done, right? Uh, Machen sparred with a lot of uh, missionaries in that context. One of them's kind of famous. I always get kind of a, a, a quizzical look from folks uh, when I, I mention this name, but Pearl Buck. How many of you? Uh, never mind. Um, many of us have heard the name Pearl Buck, fantastic writer, children's author, novelist, uh, famous uh, missionary, flaming liberal. I know, now I'm in trouble. Uh, Pearl Buck said, you know, on the mission field, having gone over to Asia, that we have just as much to learn from them about God and the path to higher places as, uh, as we have to bring. And this drove Machen absolutely nuts. And he's like, no, 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 time out, wait a minute. Uh, if we abandon the gospel, why send missionaries at all? If we're not uh, standing for Christ in a clear gospel, what are we standing for? 
right? Uh, but I, I love this. When Machen died, I've actually read uh, some of the obituaries from Machen's death, and one of them was actually written by Pearl Buck. One of the nice little uh, things written in a newspaper that was published after Machen's death was actually written by Pearl Buck about Machen, and, and she said this. It's really neat. Uh, she said, uh, Dr. Machen and I disagreed on many things with which we never resolved, but I admire him for this. He stood for what he believed at great sacrifice to himself great cost to himself. We disagreed. They never sorted it out. He never became a liberal, and, and she never came back home. Right? Uh, but she respected Machen that he stood for something. And, and that, that challenges me. I want to challenge you. you know, if Machen saw himself and, and the OPC as standing for something, what do we stand for? What did we stand for then in the 1920s and the 30s when the OPC was started, right? Uh, and what do we stand for today? Well, I think those are uh, very fair and important questions. You know, you, you're familiar with this story. Then the 1920s, uh, there were profound uh, expressions of compromise in the church, in the seminary. Machen was deeply connected to both. Uh, when Princeton was reorganized with liberal uh, teachers and board members, Machen, it all started to go down as a house on flames. Machen was tried and suspended for not being willing to fund liberal missionaries. He just wouldn't do it. He kicked and screamed. He did the craziest thing imaginable. This still kind of confuses me, right? Uh, he formed an independent board to send Presbyterian missionaries. You see the problem in that. There was desperation then. Times were hard. Stakes were up, right? Chips were down. This was a rough period. And yet, uh, there he was, standing for the church, standing for the gospel. Uh, he believed that on the one hand, the real attack on the church was not by fire and swords, threats of bonds of death, but friendly words, attack from within. I think that's true today, right? Uh, the, the threat to the church... Isn't people barging down your doors with guns? I mean, that, that might happen, but that's rare. Uh, really, I think one of the strongest threats to the church, and Machen seems to be saying this as well, uh, it's, it's actually friendly words. It's, it's the voice of compromise. It's the idol of ease and comfort. Those are the things that may threaten the church's ability to be true salt and light in this world. Machen said not only is the church the salt, but God himself preserves the salt. These are all quotations. No frontal assault, but the deadlier poison of merging the church gradually and peacefully with the life of the world. Now, uh, we again rightly point out that many of our evangelical friends have adapted fairly worldly approaches to the church. I agree. And we're right to point out there are problems with that. But it could also be a fault of ours, perhaps, uh, that, that we have merged the church and the world this way by so desiring peace and safety that, again, the idols of ease and comfort have distracted us. Okay? The friendly words. Peace and safety and calm. Like Calvin before him, uh, Machen found his encouragement in the promises of God, even when things were 
uh, dire, even when the church uh, appeared to be making bad choices, even as so many people left to start this new denomination, and you know, you know churches lost their buildings, pastors lost their pensions, even uh, when things seemed to be remarkably costly, and you can't even imagine how you'd ever bounce back from that, Machen threw himself on the promises of God and said, that's all I've got. I've got the promises of God, that's all I've got, and I've got all I need, and he continued to go forward. Uh, he had a snarky sense of humor, I think. He was ahead of his time in pointing out flawed church signs. Church signs drive me nuts. My family loves it when we go past one. My kids get excited. They're like, okay, Dad, here comes one. Anyway, he passed by one. Not a member yet? Come in and help us make this a better community. That's not the message of the church. Our goal here is not to just make the community around us better, right? You can be an atheist and try to make the community around you better. Our goal is the Great Commission. I want to read to you a quote here from Machen. This is his little book, uh, God Transcendent and Other Sermons. My pages are literally starting to fall out of this thing. I'll say it again. If you really want to get to know some of the guys that we cherish, they're sermons. Uh, This book is fantastic. If you read this book, you will just want to run out and start talking to people about Jesus because that's what Orthodox Presbyterians do. Can I get an amen? amen. I, need, I need amens. I, I preach in the South. And if I, you stay there. I preach in the South. And if on a Sunday I don't get any amens, it could be a bad day. <laughs> if I get too many amens, then I'm probably going the other way. All right, so Machen asked this question. What are you going to do, my brothers, in this great time of crisis? What a time it is to be sure. What a time of glorious opportunity. Will you stand with the world? Will you shrink from controversy? Will you witness for Christ? I love this. Only where witnessing costs you nothing. Will you pass through these stirring days without coming to any real decision? Or will you learn the lesson of Christian history? Will you penetrate by your study and your meditation beneath the surface? Will you recognize in that which prides itself on being modern an enemy that is as old as the hills? Will you hope and pray, not for a mere continuance of what now is, but for a rediscovery of the gospel that can make all things new? Will you have recourse to the charter of Christian liberty and the word of God? God grant that some of you may do that. God grant that some of you, even though you be not now decided, may come to say as you go forth into the world, it is hard in these days to be a Christian. The adversaries are strong and I am weak. But thy word is true and thy spirit will be with me. Here I am, Lord, send me. Uh, It's a battle call. It's inspiring. And I love the way that he describes uh, the times then as being those of great opportunity. I like this. Uh, What a time it is to be sure. What a time of glorious opportunity. By the way, he just got kicked out of the church. (laughs) Right? Uh, Missionaries are abandoning the gospel. The seminary is collapsing into liberalism. And Machen is saying, what a great opportunity we've got. His retirement's gone. You know, the family estate's going to this adventure that... Do you see that? That is a cross-shaped disposition that says in perilous times, 
the gospel shines forth. When it often seems so dark, then the light of the world seems so clear. Mage administered in a context that was dark, but you know, if you want to go and buy uh, a diamond, what do they set a diamond on that you might be able to see its brilliance all the more? They set it on a dark backdrop. That's exactly what Machen saw against the dark backdrop of all the compromise in the church and the uh, progression of the world. He saw the light of the gospel as brilliant and beautiful and something that people might even resolve themselves uh, to serve. And I like that. This language here, uh, will you come to any real decisions? I, I want to push some of you to a point of decision. Like, uh, be shaken up a little bit. Realize, th- these are times of crisis on the one hand, and it looks rough, right? And at the same time, this is a fantastic time because the church, this is his point, the lesson of Christian history is that the church is always at its best when the world is at its worst. Persecution always leads to a great time of conversion and uh, reformation in the life of the church. That's the lesson of Christian history. It says it all the time, right? Uh, you always grow the most in your own spiritual life when, you, when nothing's wrong or when you're forced on your face and you cast yourself on God and you, and you beg for God to do things in prayer. That's, that's always when we're at our best, more at what appears, humanly speaking, to be our weakest. And that's what Machen is seeing. Uh, It is hard in these days to be a Christian. He wrote that in 1923. That was before they ever heard the word postmodernism. That's that's even before millennials were born. (laughs) And they now rule the world. This is a time of crisis. No offense if you're a millennial. It is hard in these days to be a Christian. The adversaries are strong. I am weak, but thy word is true. And thy spirit will be with me. Here I am, Lord, send me. You don't have to be a missionary to say that. Uh, You don't have to want to go to seminary to say that. You just have to want to be faithful where God has placed you as an Orthodox Presbyterian, or if you're a different denomination, that's fine. Uh, We're equal opportunity around here. But at the end of the day, just the desire to stand for the cause of Christ uh, Machen, as you know, served in the World War as a young man in the YMCA. He, he did not have a military role, but he did serve uh, as sort of a missionary over there. Uh, he refers to opportunities that he had to labor for the gospel. One, uh, in 1918, he said this, I talked a long time to one fellow in particular who has been going through agony of soul in his effort to find peace with God. It made me think of Pilgrim's Progress. Well, I never before knew what the preaching of the gospel was. It was apparently a successful meeting. There was very little of mine in it. And here's this great line, just a great line. But the grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. I wonder sometimes what kind of suffocates the life out of us as regards the area of evangelism is that, frankly, we just doubt whether or not God's going to save anybody. Maybe it's been too long since we've seen a really exciting conversion story. Maybe our world is so defined by Christians, it's too rare that we see and hear the stories that compel us. Uh, But Machen's point, the grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. Do you believe that? Uh, The human heart is not so uh, rock-solid and foolproof that the grace of God can't penetrate into it. 
and that he's going to save all kinds of people, and he's doing it. The proclamation of the gospel is the clear joy of every Christian man. I want to note that. Sometimes uh, we overcomplicate things. Uh, I've read an awful lot of discussions about who does evangelism. Is it the role of lay people? Is it the role of pastors only? Uh, should we talk about capital E evangelism, lowercase e evangelism? There's some good reasons to wrestle with those questions. I'm going to read the quote again. Machen said, The proclamation of the gospel is the clear joy of every Christian man. It's the work of the whole church in one fashion or another. But how shall the gospel be propagated? And then he says this, what, With what lively hope does our gaze turn now to the future? At last, true evangelism can go forward without the shackle of compromising associations. The fields are white for the harvest. The evangelists are ready to be sent. Here's a great question or two. Who will give the funds needed to send them out with their message of peace? Who will be the men and women who will go? Okay, so here's a great way of looking at it. Everybody has a part in the story. You might be the ones to go. You might be the ones to help send. You might be people who are back home at praying. Uh, But we all have some part to play in the promoting and propagating of the gospel. It is the clear joy of every person. Uh, The last thing I want to read uh, from Machen uh, is a short quote here. Uh, from before the Second General Assembly in uh, 1936. Okay? Wait a minute. I'm going to save that. So where are Machen's heirs? Well, you know the story of Machen's life, right? He died uh, on the frozen plains of the Midwest in, I believe, January, uh, while uh, preaching there and encouraging churches. I should admit, it made me a little nervous, by the way. Uh, This past February, I was in Winnipeg, Canada. I got to go do a conference like this for some... uh, Yes, okay, very good. Yeah, that's right. Frozen snowbirds. Got upside down. So I got to go to Winnipeg, and I remember when they invited me, um, I thought, you know, I'm going to go for no other reason. I need to see if there are actually people in Winnipeg. Like that there's life in Winnipeg just baffles a kid from Florida. Uh, nothing should be able to live north of Fargo. That's why they made the show. That's, that's the whole point. That is the edge of the world. And if you're three hours past the edge of the world, where are you? I mean, so anyway, there were people there. We had a fantastic time. And I was speaking there. It was in Feb- February. There was snow outside. And I was talking about Machen dying on the frozen plains of the Midwest while encouraging churches about evangelism. And then I had this kind of existential crisis. <laughs> Thankfully, I made it home. Well, so Machen dies providentially a year after this denomination starts. God took our champion. You might wonder, so, you know, what's going to happen to this little church that just broke away and took on the big establishment and said, you know, we're taking the gospel, all five of us, to the ends of the earth, (laughs) right? What what happens with that? Well, uh, God raises up other people. That's just clearly uh, the way that it works. He raises up uh, other people. And he does that in one fellow named uh, Cornelius Van Til. And I have to admit, I've really grown to like this guy. I like him a lot more now than I did in seminary. When I got to know him in seminary, it was through his harder-to-read stuff. And there's some hard-to-read stuff in Van Til. 
Uh, but he also has some wonderful stuff. Again, uh, this is Book of Sermons, The God of Hope. Fantastic, very easy to read, even for a guy like me. Uh, very enjoyable and edifying. But there are other little, uh, like, cameos of Van Til that you might not be familiar with. So when I talk about Van Til, I want you to think of him as not only a reformed apologist and author who wrote these high-end books defending the faith, I'd like you to think about him as a street preacher who has this wonderful reputation of taking students from Westminster into downtown New York and standing out there on the street corner as people are just passing by in downtown New York City and preaching the gospel to them and then looking at students and saying, all right, you're up. Yeah, yeah I mean you, yeah. You, yes. There's Van Til. Not just hiding in the academy, not just writing this high-end stuff, uh, but out there on a street corner preaching to people. He was also a gardener. And I, I like to get my hands a little bit uh, dirty sometimes. Uh, Van Til uh, was a gardener. Uh, I met someone recently who had a fantastic story about Van Til, actually uh, two, uh, that I'll share with you. Uh, one is Van Til apparently did a lot of walking in his neighborhood, and after his wife passed away, students from the seminary would come <clears throat> and just kind of care for him, take him to church, do different things. Uh, and in one season where he was still walking quite a bit, uh, apparently he would walk with seminary students around his neighborhood and just, you know, just talk to them, right? And so he's walking with a seminary student one day, and he goes around the corner from Van Til's house, and one of the neighbors is outside doing something in his yard, and the neighbor of Van Til says to the student, I bet he's talking to you about Jesus, isn't he? What a wonderful way to be known by your neighbors. What a wonderful way to be thought of. Yeah, he, this, you know, they're just Jesus people. They, 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 they homeschool or whatever. They love Jesus. What are we known for? You don't have to have a PhD and teach at a seminary to be known for loving Jesus. That, that's just part of what it means to be a Christian, right? To know your neighbors. And what do you talk about? Okay. Uh, also, uh, one of the students, now pastor, uh, older gentleman, retirement age now in Southern California, was like a father to me uh, years ago, and I was in the hospital when he was a seminary student, and Van Til came to visit him, and, and the student discovered, didn't even know it, that it was Van Til's practice on Sunday afternoons to go to the hospital in between services, apparently, and visit people in the hospital. And he'd go, uh, apparently, from room to room with his Bible and say, Hi, my name's Cornelius Van Til. I'm a Protestant minister, and I was hoping I could read the Bible and pray with you. Is that okay? And Van Til would, would do this. And so I love this stuff. That, this is what it means to be Orthodox Presbyterian. Uh, to be caught up, I'm not trying to be a you know, denominational snob, so forgive me if it appears that way, but I like it a lot. I, I love our church. I, I didn't grow up in this church. I love this church. I love this church's past. I love this church's present, and I'm excited to be a part of its future, and I'd love to invigorate you with that excitement as well, that when you talk about the fathers of our faith, remember that hallway we talked about yesterday with the pictures, that you walk by, and there are the old guard, and, and here's grandma and grandpa, and here's Machen and Van Til, and there's bouncing baby you. This is your story. These are your people. This is where we come from. Machen said some, excuse me, Van Til, I can't tell the two apart, uh, said some, a, a few provocative things. I'm going to read a few and leave us some time for questions and interaction. But 
Uh, he said some things you might not agree with. Maybe it doesn't sound OPC enough. He said this, Fantil, I rejoice in Arminian preaching. <laughs> You're still here. <laughs> I figured I could create like an immediate rapture. I rejoice in Arminian preaching, but it is my business to preach and teach the Reformed faith, and when I do that, I cannot avoid the responsibility of pointing out where Arminian preaching does not fully represent the scriptural truth, and the same with apologetics. We need, I love this line, I'm throwing this out to some of you young people that are uh, smart, good writers, good thinkers, we need a Reformed Lewis. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, we need a reform Lewis. We have none. I see none on the horizon. This is pretty brilliant. Uh, May, uh, Van Til, I keep doing that, sorry. Uh, Van Til says, you know, I see a guy like Lewis who's not you know, reformed in a number of ways, but he's a wonderful communicator. I mean, if you've read C.S. Lewis, it's fantastic. If you haven't, repent. It's just good stuff. <laughs> and he's like, we need a reformed Lewis. Uh, we, we need good writers. We need good songwriters. Uh, I rejoice that there's Arminian preaching out there, but I want more faithful reform preaching in here. Uh, I rejoice that there are Arminians out there on the streets preaching the gospel, but we need reform people on the streets preaching the gospel. That's, that's the mantle and the gauntlet that's being thrown down here, is uh, why let the Arminians have all the fun? I go hang out with you know, a bunch of pastor church planner types in my area, and you know, I, I hear stories sometimes that are, are both good and bad for me. You know, sometimes I, I'll hear stories that make me jealous. I mean, some of these churches, you know, every Sunday there's kind of the, the pressure point moment that gets people to walk the aisle. And I think I told you, you know, when I was a young Christian, I walked the aisle so many times the pastor starts saying, no, no, come back. We'll talk, I'll call you. Right, so, you know, I hear these guys tell me, you know, how many people were saved the day before. I, I'm not always persuaded, to be honest with you. But there's a sign that says, you know, what? Why do so many people get saved in the charismatic church and they, they, they grow this way in a little while for the Baptist church or whatever and they finally make their way home to us? I want them at the beginning. I want to be their first pastor, not their fifth. You should too, right? I want this to be their first church, not, not the one they finally find when they discover Ligonier or you know, however it tends to work. Uh, why, 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 why let the Arminians be the only ones out there doing all the fun stuff and we can go out there and do it, right? and write good materials and music and all kinds of stuff that might capture uh, people's attention. Van Til said, Our task is those who still believe that we are by nature sinners with the burden of God's wrath upon us till Christ bears the penalty due to our sins on our behalf is to unite in a common effort of carrying forth the gospel as proclaimed by the reformers to the world that is lost in sin today. This is our job. Uh, he preached uh, before uh, general assemblies and said uh, that we need as a church uh, to stand up for the gospel. He even interestingly says, uh, will there once more by the grace of God be men like Luther and Calvin, men like uh, Latimer and others that are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and families that are willing to give themselves to the life of the gospel? I need to read this because part of my page has been tore off. I'm not quite sure who did it. Be patient. Oh, sorry. What was that about reading glasses? You know the difference between page 
41 and page 141, you know what the difference is between the two? A hundred pages. <laughs> All right, here's the quote. Again, this question, and I'll, I'll try to wind down here in the next couple of minutes, and you know what I mean by that, the next 20. So here's the question. You know, it comes up a lot, I think, in our circles, right? Who should be out there sharing the gospel? Who should be encouraged to do this work? Is it just the work of the ordained, or do the whole people of God have a part in this? I gave you a Machen quote, and now I'm going to give you a Van Til quote. And if you still want to push back, it's okay, but just remember, I'm a big guy, and I've got a Van Til right there, and I've got a Machen right there, so here's the quote. Only if each one of God's people, who? Each one of God's people will see himself in the light of the calling that he has together with all the people of the covenant to become a blessing to all the nations through the promised Messiah. Will they be able to face the future with joy and confidence instead of with fear? Now, let's just have kind of the, you know, the, the real honest, vulnerable part of the thing, right? I think there are times when we get fearful. I think there are times when we recognize the challenges of raising families in this world, and it's, it's scary. I think there are times where pastors, if they're honest, look at you know, the church and the narratives of growth and decline and the things that we see, and there are times where it's, it's pretty sobering. Okay? And I, I, I want to know, it strikes me, it's a big deal, I'm not quite sure if I've, if I've hit it forcefully enough that we all get it, that, that Machen and Van Til write in a context when the church is really like pressed up against the wall. Like this is the moment in the wrestling match right before the guy usually taps out. But rather they say, what lively hope do we have? What confidence do we have? But only if each of God's people see themselves as having a part to play in this story of the Great Commission, only with that resolve shall we have confidence about our future. In other words, we have to get off the sidelines and into the game. And as we get off the sidelines and into the game as a church, we ought to have profound confidence because the Lord of the harvest is on our side. The battle belongs to the team. No, right? The battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord has said he's going to be victorious. Van Til very clearly had a life verse, and uh, that's a verse I'd like to read from as I really do wind this down. And it's from 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the what chapter? The resurrection chapter, right? Uh, what is the confidence that we have regarding all these things that we're talking about? Well, it's not in us, it's not in our charm, it's not in our wit. It's not in our intellect. It's not in our good looks. It's not in the size of our numbers. It's not in the depth of our pockets. None of the confidence that we have is in us. Our confidence, friends, is in the resurrection. But if God can raise the dead, better put, because he has raised the dead in Christ Jesus, what can't he do? If he can create the world out of nothing and raise the dead, what can't he do? do anything. And he can certainly save people. Proof of that is you are here. And the proof of that is what's coming next. With what lively hope do we embrace our future? So this this was Van Til's verse that he very often quoted. It's actually peppered throughout uh, most of his sermons. It's interesting. He just seems to find a way to bring it back in. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Let me take a verse back, put it in context. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the verse that he often quotes. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now that word vain reminds us of an Old Testament book where all of life is vanity. What's the book? Ecclesiastes. You've read it. You know the content in general. And do you know, if the dead are not raised, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then everything we do and everything I'm talking about is pointless. As Paul quoted from a few chapters earlier, and a musician that my wife and I like quite a bit uh, has also quoted, you know, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, what are we going to do? we got a plan. Let's get drunk. Real drunk. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Game, set, match. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you're all a bunch of fools. Let's just get drunk and just drive off the cliff. And many have. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, our labor together in the field of God's harvest is not in vain. And only is it not in vain, he guarantees it will be fruitful. He guarantees it will be fruitful. And because of that, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because in Christ Jesus, the resurrected and victorious conqueror, our labor, all of our labor, no matter who we are and where we're stationed in the field, our labor is not in vain because it's in him. All right. I'm going to stop there. That leaves us uh, about 10 minutes or so for Q&A. At the back, Rebecca? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. Um, and, I, and I hear that uh, a good bit, especially living in the South, you know, Bible Belt, uh, where I often hear things like, don't give me, I don't need creeds, I don't need confessions, I don't need labels, I don't need names. Just give me Jesus. In my view, the, the, the problem with that is, well, number one, let me just affirm what you're saying and say, I think that, uh, as has already been noted, we sometimes esteem people so highly, it comes off, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> and we don't need to be creepy. Creepy is not good. I'm not encouraging creepy. Uh, I, I think sometimes the way we talk about people, it just sounds just you know a little cultish, right? Maybe it's just it's just kind of a it's just kind of a strange thing. On the other hand, though, I think it's I think it's impossible for us not to use vocabulary that helps us identify who we are. And what's interesting about it, a couple of illustrations. One is we had this really sweet uh, older gentleman at a church. Uh, in Florida, uh, named Dwight, who kept telling me all the time, Pastor, I don't need creeds and confessions. Just give me my Bible. Just give me Jesus. Real strong southern accent. Uh, you know, probably had sweet tea for blood in his body. <laughs> and a really great guy. I mean, really loved Jesus. He'd give me a good amen. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord. And I remember visiting him in the hospital when he was really sick. And he asked me to grab his wallet. And I did. And he told me to open it up and pull out this thing. And there was this tired little brown 
weathered from the oil of his hands, piece of paper, and it's a tender moment for me to reflect on it. It said at the top, what is my only comfort in life and in death? And I was ministering to this guy. He'd been telling me for years he doesn't need creeds and confessions. And in his wallet was Heidelberg Catechism. I don't even know if he knew what it was. It was the weirdest, like, I'm just looking up and down. Like, I just, <laughs> help, I don't get it. I'll say to you, you're not saying this. I'm not putting these words in your mouth. But let me just say, my, I have a big interest in trying to evangelize postmoderns, millennials, and people who perceive themselves as post-Christian, which I think is a lot of people today. And it strikes me that one of the driving philosophical agendas is to obliterate distinctions. Think about gender. Okay? Uh, we're obliterating distinctions. Think about you know, the, the Hollywood version of religion. is not that it's bad to go looking for God. It's just bad to think that you found him. Because once you think you've found them, then you have to begin making distinctions. He might actually want you to do something. Um, you know, so you have this, uh, yeah, I think uh, Brian Chappell uh, said it very well, um, the goal of postmodernism is not the ending of religion, but the blending of religion. It's not to end it all, it's just to throw it all in the blender and make it totally equal where none is uh, prioritized over the other because after all, that would be a commitment to a truth category and truth has implications and requires submission, et cetera, to the truth. So I, I think when it comes full circle, it becomes helpful to me to actually identify, I, I consider myself a reformed evangelical or a reforming evangelical. And those are words that if you're talking to somebody, maybe they make no sense at all, but you get to begin explaining them. And I think that that's helpful to have vocabulary that distinguishes us from others so that we can identify who we are. Last way I'll illustrate it, and I take too long to answer questions. I apologize for that. But I think about Jehovah's Witnesses, right, uh, who are the consequence of, I mean, many you know, Jehovah's Witnesses in the South, at least, are often you know, minority culture uh, who stopped going to church. One af Sunday afternoon, JWs come by when we're all at church, and you know, they, they prey upon people, and they have no knowledge of this sort of vocabulary, historical creeds, never heard of the early church, right? And they, and they begin to spit off a, a heresy which was dealt with in the church third, fourth century. But because they're absolutely ignorant of the past, to prove Wells right, uh, we repeat it. So for my part, I actually think it's helpful to have labels that identify as long as we use them generously and don't allow them to become creepy idols. At the back. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot to say here. I mean, my, my dissertation was on this subject. So, you know, 300 pages of tree went to, um, you know, trying to address the subject. And I'm not pretending to have done a great job with it or scratched the surface. It's complicated. Um, it's, it's kind of like trying to hook a jellyfish. Number one, if you get close, they sting. And number two, they constantly change shape. There's no true center to a jellyfish, right? I mean, just... It's, just, it's amorphous, it keeps changing. Postmodernism, by definition, resists definition. It's a complicated conversation. That being said, it's also, I think, just you know, old problems and new clothes. So from a biblical perspective, you know, it's an interesting 
questions, right? Postmodernism is all, all about questions and skepticism. And I think the questions are just part of a, a sophisticated dance, but it's, but it's also fake. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So in the Bible, you know, the question, has God really said, really summarizes all of postmodern skepticism from my part to make it very simple, right? All this question about skepticism and <clears throat> can we know anything truly and uh, are there authors behind books, right? I mean, all, the, all that stuff, you know, has God really said, this is just an old question in new clothes. It's interesting, too, Jesus before Pilate. So there's Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. The answer to the question, has God really said, right? This is his yes and amen in Christ. But it's interesting what Pilate says to Jesus. What is truth? When the truth is right there in front of him and speaking to him. Okay? Uh, so again, you know, the questions aren't new. The problem with postmodernism is not that it's come up with something new to say. It's just a bit more angry and resolved as it says it. And as one who's sort of the emblem, historically, chronologically, born in 1972, and we could talk for 45 minutes about just this, uh, what postmodernism is and isn't, um, I, I really think the questions are just a way of avoiding the reality that we simply don't want to submit with God, submit to God. I think Van Til is really right. It's actually not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. People will tell me all the time their intellectual objections to Christianity. And I, I used to actually engage those a lot. Okay, you want to talk about creation science? Let's go. Right? And an hour later, we haven't really gotten anywhere. But maybe it might be the case that, that those questions aren't really the question. Maybe, the, you know, like Van Til says in his little thing, uh, the little dialogue, help me, why I believe in God. Uh, that little track is fantastic. I think he, he brings the thing to a real sharp focus. says, you know, smoke screens aside, the problem is in your heart you actually know there is a God. And you just don't want to submit to him. And all these questions, all these little wranglings and meanderings we keep doing are just your sophisticated way of avoiding the fact that you know who you are, it's, it's just not nice, and you know in your heart there's a God, and you don't want to submit to him. This is a moral problem, not a new intellectual one. I do believe that. Last thing I'll say on it, and only because we probably should take another question. It's interesting to me what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Uh, which is a very important verse for me. I almost quit Bible college. It was killing me. And John 14, 6 kept me in school. It's a really emotional story I'll tell another time. But uh, it's interesting what Jesus said to there, if you're thinking of the postmodern mind, right? Uh, effectively, uh, Jesus' answer said to them, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you are lost, which postmodernism is, I'm the way. Okay? If you are confused by the endless list of competing voices, I am the truth. And if you are dead and your trespass and sins, as you are, apart from me, I am the life. And then the most controversial statement in all of history, no one comes except through me. John 14.6 is no silver bullet, right? Because apart from the Spirit, we have no silver, silver bullet. But if I were going to take one verse to talk to a postmodern skeptic about, I would drill down on John 14, 6, and I would not pull a single punch. Not a one. Because they wouldn't respect you if you did anyway. But it's, it's pretty powerful. Really great question. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Kathy, right? Yes. yes. I, uh, I 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm encouraged by the story of Daniel Yeah. Can everybody hear her in the back? Ish. So the question is, well, there's not really a question there, um, but just a very encouraging reflection on the importance of identity and hearing some of the stories of what it means to be Orthodox Presbyterian. Fair enough. Yeah. So let me let me build on that kind of interact. I guess Rebecca is your name now. I know. Okay. Uh, so I think what's significant about at least telling the stories, of course, you know, the names are helpful, but with a qualification, is the identity thing, this goes back to the young man in back as well, is significant in postmodern discussion because the reason why postmoderns and millennials, non-Christian postmodern millennials, are so angry is because they've lost their identity. They've been intellectually conditioned to think that they cannot trust anything, anybody, no history book, their parents, their church, the government, absolutely everything is disrespected in a fairly pronounced way. So when your feet are firmly planted in midair, you have no clue where you land. And so anger, the mosh pit. Okay, so I've spent a lot of years uh, slam dancing. I've broken two arms, uh, my own nose. Uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to entertain you for a moment, I used to swing from rafters over, out over, I mean, high up over bodies, stages higher than this, chicken fighting with some other drunk idiot uh, with our feet, trying to kick the other person off, and then we would just land on body. Imagine Everett and me doing this. I mean, we're going to kill people. <laughs> I mean, I've hospitalized other people. I'm not kidding at all, you know, doing this. But, but why? Like, why all this? Where did mosh pits come from? You know where they came from? Anger. Angry music. Now I still work out to Metallica. I mean, it works. If you, if you want to get five pounds more up and run, run one more sprint or burpee, whatever, uh, you know, there's there's passion and anger. And, and postmodernism, the secular version of it, is passionately angry. It's distrustful of everything. It's had everything stripped away, and what it's left with is nothing but the bitter feeling of loss, right? And so we have hope, and not only do we have hope, we have identity. We are part of the greatest story ever told. Uh, we have one uh, who, you know, the, the word of God is living and active. In postmodernism, everybody's dead. Every author is dead. Uh, you can't trust anything from history. Every, everything is dead. Uh, our author in here still speaks, and he speaks a good word that gives hope. That's the opposite of the anger in a mosh pit. So I think the identity thing is important. I'm going to take it just one last little route here. I can't do that amount of time, aren't I? Oh, I was going to say something really good. You have to wait. It's his fault. Okay. Returning tomorrow. And one of the beautiful things, one of the things I love about General Assembly, about Presbytery, about being on committees, and about coming to family camp is just what we're talking about here. So... I feel, like, I feel like my church and I learn how to better serve Christ, the better I get to know each one of you. And I would encourage you to do just that. Learn more about what your identity is in the OP, but more importantly, what your identity is in Christ. And be encouraged as God demonstrates to you how you can change, because you'll speak to all those that have been remade in the image of Christ Jesus and what he's accomplished in them, he'll accomplish in you and in your church and amongst your families and in our denomination and take this whole world smashing the gates of hell because they will not prevail against it. I'm going to remind you at the end of this session that 
Our lifeguards today are John McLennan from 1 to 2.30. If Brock Pavier is still munching on lunch and is a little bit late, John now knows that. The medics on call are John McLennan, who's at the water, but you can get him. Or actually, no, Hope, Hope, Hope. Stand up, Hope, Hope, Hope. And the first aid kit is by the fireplace in the lodge. And you can come to Hope. You can come to this man. You can come to John McLennan. And there you go. So drop in the water and get a Band-Aid from John. <laughs> Any other announcements before we're dismissed? Let me just say, I, I will not forget where we left off. And the point that I was about to make, <laughs> sorry, I think I'm in trouble. That, that's, she's, she, does, she does not look happy I'm going out the building that way. No, I, I won't forget where we're, this is, where we're getting ready to go is important, but it would take a little while to treat it. And so we will get, tomorrow we talk about cultivating a culture of evangelism in the church. It's the, it's the practical nuts and bolts of all we've been building towards. And I will, I will pick up where we left off. I, I won't say I promise, because I've reserved those words. Really, I, I don't use those words, but uh, I'll try really hard. And I will work hard to, uh, to get him up here at 9.55 instead of 10 o'clock just to, so he can start that way. You are dismissed.